In the second chapter of John, we find this piece of sacred history. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the matter of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, that was made wine, but did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. During Lent, we've been talking a little bit about the, the history of this building, its design, and we've been paying particular attention to the windows here in the sanctuary. I've told you about the desire of the building committee to build a church that looked like a church, one that testifies to the traditional faith and the worship of this congregation. I reminded you of their efforts to copy certain aspects of our old building in the new for the sake of continuity, and that while there are obvious differences between the two, there are several deliberate similarities. We've discussed the differences between stained glass and faceted glass, and talked a little bit about the delightful but difficult process of choosing those elements of our faith to be represented by symbols in the windows of the sanctuary. One of the most satisfying periods in my life as a pastor was the time in which I was an advisory member of the building committee that worked long, hard hours to design this sanctuary. And I think I speak for everyone else who was a part of that group when I say that I am still so satisfied with the results of our labor that there is very little that I would now change if I had the chance to change it. Every once in a while, I'm asked questions about the building. For example, I am asked, what's behind this area where the choir sits? The answer is there's nothing back there but a very odd-shaped closet. I've been asked about this thing that sticks out over the choir, and what is that? It's called a sound reflector. We paid good money to bring an acoustical engineer in to advise us, and he assures us that that sound reflector would be so effective in projecting the beautiful music our choir makes out into the sanctuary that there would never be a need for electronic amplification. Now, you'll notice that since the papers were signed and the mortgage was paid, and that engineer's name has been forgotten, we've installed microphones over the choir. 
And this is not a comment on the beautiful work done by our choir, but it is a reminder that even engineers can be wrong from time to time. I'm asked occasionally, where's the handicap ramp? If you know anything about modern law, you know that since the chancel is above the level of the sanctuary floor, and since law requires that the handicapped be given access to any part of the building that the non-handicapped might use, there has to be a ramp. The architect wanted to place the ramp along one side of the sanctuary with a wrought iron railing between it and the sanctuary. But of course, it would have interfered with the symmetry of the room, it would have cut into seating, and it would have been a visual distraction. Someone on the committee asked why the handicap ramp couldn't be wound around behind the chancel. The architect liked that idea. Whoever had to approve it, approved it. And now if you walk in behind the chancel at the floor level on this side, you'll find yourself at floor level. When you come out on the other side, you're three steps above the floor of the sanctuary because that's where our handicap ramp is. One final observation, this relates directly to the windows. You'll notice the beautiful borders in the windows. And you've probably noticed that there are three different colors, and you may have wondered why. The artist who designed these windows came to the building committee with miniature displays of what his work would look like if we accepted it and it was installed. These were pieces of white poster board cut in the shape of the windows and filled with colored pieces of cellophane that matched his design for the windows. Held up to a light, they looked very much like what we see every Sunday morning. In one of these, there were three windows, and each window had a differently colored border, and the artist asked the building committee, which one do you like? The committee passed the model around the table, thought for a long while, and said, yes, and that's how we ended up with three different colors in the three side windows of the sanctuary. During Lent, we're looking at those windows and refreshing our memories of what their symbols mean. This is being done in response to a number of questions and suggestions that indicate that with the passing of time and with the expected change in the makeover or makeup of the congregation, our collective memory of such things has begun to fade. On the first Sunday of Lent, we concentrated on the middle window of the east wall, where there are two symbols representing the church's two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. On the second Sunday, we looked at the central window on this wall and its reminders of the personal relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. There is the Bible in which God speaks to us, and there is a reminder of prayer in which we speak to him. And last week, we looked at the back window on the west wall in which two Old Testament events are represented, creation and the flood. And this morning, I call your attention to the back window on this wall where we see depictions of two miracles that are recorded in the New Testament. And these are on an insert in your bulletin if you're not able to see the window. On the top are symbols reminding us of the two occasions on which Jesus used his power as the Son of God to multiply a little bit of food to feed crowds numbering thousands of people. And beneath it are two vessels holding different kinds of liquid, 
and two rings superimposed on the cross, calling to mind the first of the Lord's miracles and the marriage celebration during which it took place. There is one thing in the sanctuary that I would change if I could. And that has to do with the location of that window. If we had it to do over again, I would recommend putting that window on this side of the sanctuary, for through it the sun, shining brightly at the time of its setting, about the same time that brides and grooms stand in this sanctuary and commit their lives to one another in marriage, and then have their pictures taken. What a beautiful window, if it were brightly lighted, for a bride and groom to have as a backdrop for one of their pictures together. What a beautiful token of the beauty and the warmth of this sanctuary it would be for a young couple to carry away with them and to find in their marriage album. What a subtle encouragement for them to recall what they learned while they were here about the value that God assigns to marriage. And what a persuasive reminder to them, as the couple at Cana did, to invite Jesus to be a part of their married life. Now I have some thoughts I'd like to share with you about the symbols in that window, and I'd like to begin with some general observations about the miracles that are woven into the stories of Jesus' life. If you're at all familiar with these histories, you know that on almost every page of the Gospels are accounts of moments in which Jesus used the power within him to respond to human need and to reveal himself to his disciples as the Messiah. These are the signs and wonders that characterize the public portion of his life. You're also aware that these miracles are too many in number, they are too varied in nature, and too interwoven into the fabric of Jesus' life to allow them to be removed and have anything of substance left over. Liberals in the church who are really deists in sheep's clothing, insist that these miracle stories are either misunderstandings or outright fabrications. They start with the assumption that miracles are not possible because God is not involved in the day-to-day management of the universe. They assume this not because there's any evidence that it's true, but because they desperately want it to be true. Their assumption about the impossible, impossibility of miracles leads them to virtually destroy the integrity of the New Testament historians and to ruin the value of Jesus' life. The Jesus to whom they give lip service is a half-real, half-mythical man stripped of his deity and denied his power. If miracles aren't possible, then Jesus did not do miracles. And if Jesus did not do miracles, then his claim and the claims of those who witnessed his life that he did makes them either liars or delusionary. In either case, you and I are foolish to commit ourselves to religion that has falsehood or delusion at its very foundation. The best thing for us would be to abandon the Christian religion and perhaps to start our own. This, in fact, is what liberals in the Protestant church have done. They simply lack the decency to admit that this is what they've done. 
In spite of having abandoned every significant Christian doctrine, they continue to call themselves Christians. And this generates all kinds of confusion in conversation among religious people. Another of these general observations about miracles in Christ's life is that, in general, they were not done to call attention to Jesus. At Cana, only his disciples and his mother and a few of the servants knew what he had done. He could have signaled for quiet in the room. He could have whistled for everybody's attention. He could have had the water brought in, summoned a stranger out of the crowd to come forward and taste the water and testify as to what he found it to be. Then he could have moved his hands mysteriously over the water and then call that same man to come back and taste again. And the startled reaction of this witness would have been immediate and continuing testimony of the powers latent within our Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, the Lord worked quietly behind the scenes, unleashing his divine power over creation without fanfare of any sort. When he fed the crowd with thousands of potential witnesses available and his earthly ministry fast approaching its climax, only his disciples knew what he did on that occasion. The crowds were so impressed that they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king, but only because they loved the quantity and the quality of the food that he served, not because they had any idea at all where it came from. He commanded the ten lepers to go show themselves to the priests. And it was not immediately, but along the way, after they had left Jesus' presence, that they were healed. The fig tree he cursed during the day while men were watching died during the night while men were sleeping. The man born blind didn't even know Jesus' name. The centurion's servant was healed by the Lord's remote control over his condition, but the Roman soldier didn't learn of this until he was close to home. Now, certainly some of the Lord's miracles occurred in the presence of crowds of non-believers. The paralytic who was carried to Jesus by friends was healed in the presence of a large crowd. The man with the shriveled arm had his twisted body straightened by the Lord in a crowded synagogue on a Sabbath. Lazarus' tomb was emptied in the presence of a great number of mourners. But in each case, the general knowledge of the miracle was not the purpose for the miracle. These signs and wonders were, first of all, expressions of the compassion of Jesus Christ, and secondly, convincing and encouraging proofs of his deity to those already numbered among his disciples. A third observation about the miracles of Jesus has to do with their evidentiary value. For any person who is truly looking for religious and moral truth, and for any Christian who is troubled by doubts, the miracles of Christ's life are of enormous value. John calls them signs because they point us to the divine identity of Jesus and his ability to save. At one time, his disciples said to one another, in the wake of one of his most impressive miracles, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? No person 
will be left unrewarded by God, who asks such a question about Christ with an open mind and a seeking heart. When we compare and contrast these two miracles in particular, we notice some similarities in them and some differences between them. One was recorded by a man who was present with Jesus at the wedding in Cana and an eyewitness to what he reports to have happened. The other event is found in the history written by a man who became a Christian sometime after Christ's resurrection. But both of these men claim in their writings to be careful historians. The one, John, carefully culling his, first, for his personal memories of things he saw Jesus do and things he heard Jesus say to produce a comprehensive and persuasive collection. The other, Luke, claiming from the beginning of his work to have thoroughly researched the life of Christ, interviewing eyewitnesses before writing the gospel that bears his name. The New Testament books of Luke and John are among the most carefully researched and honestly written histories from the ancient world. They tell us of a man named Jesus, a man who made extraordinary claims for himself, a man whose life and works substantiate those claims. Our faith is not built on the sand of myth and half-truths. The psalmist wrote, I will both lay me down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the confidence, this is the peace of every Christian believer. We notice that one of these miracles benefited primarily just two people, while the other was a blessing to thousands. In feeding the crowd, the Lord responded to a most basic human need. While at the wedding, he added fullness to the fullness of the occasion. Each of these miracles took place, we notice, in a context in which people were seeking Jesus. John tells us very carefully that he was at the wedding in Cana because he was invited to be there. And without speculating on their reasons, Luke tells us the Lord found himself in the midst of the multitude he was soon to feed because they were looking for him. And both of these miracles remind us of the miracles of manna and quail in the wilderness and of the Lord's teaching about the birds of the air and how completely God feeds them. And as we look at these particular miracles, there are important lessons that we might learn from them. One of them relates to the value that God assigns to marriage. Traditional Protestant wedding ceremonies begin with language like this. Marriage was instituted by God. It is to be regulated by his commandments. It was blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ and is to be held in honor among all people. Jesus' presence at the wedding in Cana and his choosing that occasion as the setting for his first miracle are signs of his high regard for the institution of marriage. Nowhere in the Bible does God declare that he expects all people to marry. But often in the scriptures, he plainly and repeatedly declares that the privileges of marriage are intended only for the married. From the very beginning of the inspired history of fallen man, God assigns an obvious importance and value to marriage. 
In the first chapter of that fallen human history, the fourth chapter of Genesis, we read that Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Notice the words that God chose to describe Eve's relationship with Adam. She is not called his sweetheart or his girlfriend. She is not his significant other or his soulmate or his partner. She is his wife. Jesus said that one of the marks of normalcy at the time of the religious and moral decline before the flood was that even then people were marrying and giving in marriage. If you're familiar with the law of Moses, you know that it has much to say about the sanctity of marriage. And you're probably aware that three of the Ten Commandments are intended to protect marriage and to protect the family. And over and over, the prophets of old chided the people of God for their unfaithfulness to the Lord and their unfaithfulness to their marriage vows. And the New Testament picks up these themes and repeats them. So from the old to the new, there is continuity. This is the view of marriage and its pleasures that was held by an overwhelming majority of Americans since the pilgrims and their children landed at Plymouth until the hippies and their friends went to Woodstock. It's a view thoroughly derived from the Bible and completely consistent with its values. But in the last two or three generations, a radical change has occurred in the American view of marriage. It is now reported that fully half of American marriages end in divorce. And I saw in the newspaper recently that over half of babies delivered in America are born to unwed mothers. We see a significant decline in the numbers of marriages being performed in this church. Just 20 years ago, in 1992, 53 couples repeated their vows in this sanctuary. A decade later, in 2002, that number fell to 29, a drop of 45%. And this year, the number of weddings is expected to be just 9 or 10. Now, in that 20 years, the demographics of the surrounding community have changed. And this might explain part of this drop in the number of weddings, but it doesn't begin to explain it all. And that can be traced to the changing values of the culture in which we live, as America becomes less and less Christian. One of the lessons of this first miracle of the one we call Lord relates to the value and to the sanctity of marriage in the eyes of God. Another of these lessons is found in Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000. There we note these descriptive words which we read together a moment ago. Then Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. Jesus held these basic items of food in his hands, and he gave a prayer of thanksgiving and blessing. In the upper room on the last night of his life, Matthew tells us that Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. In the 24th chapter of Luke, we find a piece of the history of that first 
Easter Sunday, the day that Jesus' grave was discovered empty. There we find the familiar story of the two disciples, Cleopas was one of them, making their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and along the way they were joined by a stranger. And as they walked along the road, they talked of many things, but according to Luke, it was only when they stopped at an inn to eat, and this stranger took the bread and blessed it, that in the act that recognized him as Jesus, risen from the dead. The simple discipline of offering a brief prayer of thanksgiving at mealtimes has its roots not in family traditions, not in church tradition, but in the practice of Christ himself. He is the one who taught us to pray, give me this day my daily bread. And isn't it natural for a people who have humbly acknowledged their dependence upon God for the basic staff of life and have requested that in prayer to then lift their hearts and voices in grateful praise when God responds to their prayer and grants them their food. Finally, these two observations. In each of these miracles, we notice that our Lord made use of very, very ordinary, common materials. Water in the first, fish and bread in the other. And by his power, transformed them into something marvelously useful in accomplishing the purposes of God. Our lives are as common as that water. We are as ordinary as that bread and those fish. But as we are willing, as we yield ourselves to Christ and to his will and to his power, God is able to make of us something even more marvelously useful in accomplishing his purposes. And then we notice that in each of these two miracles, the need the miracle addressed was made known to Jesus by someone who was concerned about the person who had that need. At the wedding in Cana, it was Mary, the Lord's mother, who came to him with the news that the young couple in whose honor the occasion had been scheduled were about to be embarrassed and shamed. At the time of the feeding of the crowd, it was Jesus' disciples who became aware of the lateness of the hour and alerted him to the hunger of the people. May the symbols in this window represent our care for one another, our desire to reach out to one another in the love of Jesus Christ, and our carrying the needs of others before our Father's throne in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, we've come together as a people who bear the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for ourselves that as we have sat together quietly, hopefully, expectantly, that that Spirit who revealed himself in a rushing mighty wind in Acts 2 has moved among us and touched us where we need to be touched. Send us on our way rejoicing, eager to be of use to you. We pray in Jesus' name.